some Olympic events are straightforward. Sprint to the line fastest, shoot the arrow towards the bullseye, lift more weight than the next person. Others have a format a bit less easy to decipher. The horses have been transported about an hour from Baji Cohen Equestrian Center for the second phase of eventing to this twisting cross-country course on a reclaimed island that was eight years in the building. You'll see inclines and declines, obstacles named and decorated to honor Japanese landmarks and culture, and as always, horses splashing in water. Running from steeple to steeple in the Irish countryside, over fences and through streams, might seem like a task far removed from the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, with its perfectly red track surface and curated bouquets at the equestrian parks. And yet two events run on two or four legs remind us that utility is at the core of the Olympics and that manufacturing one's natural challenges may seem a little forced, but that finding our force is why we compete in the first place. On day 14 of the Olympics, recreating obstructions for the sport of it. They were doing an event in the countryside with their horses and it was like too muddy, so the riders instead did the race. One of the most exciting things, uh, I think, done in the equestrian world, it's a timed event that is over obstacles that are out in the field. And so you're up and down all sorts of different terrain, jumping water, ditches, banks, all sorts of stuff. I just don't think I had a good view of the barrier. I hit my front foot on it and took a tumble and then all of a sudden I was just getting run over by many girls behind me. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the Tokyo Olympic Games. Coming to you daily during the Games, we'll bring you the stories shaping the greatest athletic competition in all the world, held in extraordinary times. This podcast is presented by Nordatrack from iFit. Emma Coburn tripping over that barrier, goes to the inside. She's back up and running. Meanwhile, it's Chamudi that has passed Frerix. The 3,000-meter steeplechase is a track event unlike any other. It requires its own permanent apparatuses, and in fact, it's not run on an actual oval course. It requires the runners to overcome 28 barriers and seven water jumps, the latter pulling the circuit off the regular 400-meter track. Unlike hurdlers, steeplechasers step on the barriers, and in the case of the water jump, land in a man-made puddle. We spoke to competitors as they finished their heat races, soaked shoes in hand. Courtney Frerichs, you've run the fastest time in American history in this very unique event. I'm so curious what drew you to it in the first place. Yeah, um, I like that it really brings a lot of athleticism to the track. I grew up doing gymnastics, and so and playing soccer, so it brings a lot of the skills that I learned from those sports into running. Running and jumping, do you see those barriers as something you just have to get through or a place where the race can be won? I definitely think I use it to my advantage. Um, When I won the silver medal in 2017 at Worlds, um, I made a move with 300 to go because I knew the more barriers there were, the better advantage I have. So definitely using those to my advantage. Yeah, use whatever you can, right? What's the history of the steeplechase, the origin of the barriers you use to your advantage? 
Um, I've heard that it originated like people running from church steeple to church steeple and like hurdling fences and water along the way. So kind of seems pretty fun. You know, I, I actually fell in love with running because of cross country. So I think that it kind of brings a cross country element then to the track, which is pretty awesome. Emma Coburn from the United States, the resume speaks for itself. What makes a good steeplechaser? I think it takes a combination of strength, athleticism, um, and I think you have to be pretty calm in chaos. You know, like people fall, people trip, and you can't get upset or distracted when uh, crazy stuff happens around you. Yeah, it looks pretty hectic. How did you end up in the steeplechase? Um, I just signed up for it in high school um, because my dad thought I'd be good at it, and right away I was. So just being good at it right away kind of helped. Um, and then I, I like to play, you know, in my youth I played other sports, so I think just, I think it's fun to do the jumping and do the water jump. It, it looks like a lot of fun. I asked Courtney about the origin of the sport. Do you know about the history of the event? Um, yes and no. I was, I've been told mixed histories that it was... Uh, one time a race that people went steeple in a church steeple to steeple in the other town but i think it actually stems from uh there was they were doing an event in the countryside with their horses and it was like too muddy so the riders instead did the race um whatever it is i'm just happy it's in the olympics genevieve lalonde what draws you to the craziness of steeplechase so um you know, honestly, I ran uh, cross country as a kid, loved it. Um, started running track, started with the 15 and the 3,000 meters. Um, really liked it, but uh, there's something missing. I love the technical side of it, you know, the fact that um, it's, a, it's a grown up obstacle course, to be honest. And uh, so I really enjoy it. And honestly, the competitors in it are amazing. Um, we have such lovely competitors, and it makes the event just so much more fun. And uh, I think people like watching it as much as I like running it. So, um, you know, just jumping over, splashing things, running around in circles, trying your hardest. That's what it's all about. Yes, it is. Is there a clique of steeplechasers? Do you have your own thing compared to the regular track athletes? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, we're all pretty good friends. So um, that's, that's pretty sweet. And uh, I think it's also, you know, it takes a special kind of person to run around a pretty grueling race and jump over things. So um, I think we all kind of connect on that end. And, uh, you know, we elevate each other's games, which is ultimately what sport is about. And uh, so I think together we, we create this magical event. And I just hope that we can invite people in it as we, as we race. So and inspire the next generation to try it too. And that's an awesome goal. I, one barrier for me might be the wet shoes, I'll tell you that. Although maybe it's cooling you down in this blistering Tokyo heat. I think so. And everyone asks like, how is it to run with wet shoes? But to be honest, I don't, I don't think many of us really notice and you try to avoid the water. Um, you know, on days like this, it's kind of nice to get a refreshing um, a sploosh, but uh, most of the time the water's pretty gross. So, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Georgia Wincup, what makes a good steeplechaser apart from not being scared of murky water? Um, I definitely think you need to have a lot of spatial awareness. I mean, in pack running, it's particularly hard to kind of line up those steeples. And obviously there are times when you tippy toe towards them. So I think it's really important to be able to kind of do those steeples under pressure with a group of people. So training obviously involves a little bit of that. Um, and also kind of being able to jump over the steeples when you kind of hit the wall. It's particularly difficult when everything feels flat and with the humidity. So I guess you've got to have a bit of perseverance like any event out there on the track. What was your road to discovering the steeplechase? 
Um, I actually was encouraged by a coach when I was about 14. And my first one was horrific. I fell in the water, jumped the first lap. I was in joggers, which is terrible. Um, and the next one I did, I qualified for nationals and kind of managed to come third a few weeks later at nationals and suddenly it was just deemed my event. And luckily I like it and luckily I'm still here. Steeplechase, despite having shed its natural origin, is very much still here, with frequent falls and the athlete's incredible endurance on display. It really is a spectacle. What these 300-meter steeplechase runners alluded to is that the quirky race seen on the track in the Olympic Stadium is actually a spin-off of an equestrian event also in the Olympics, eventing's cross-country discipline. To understand the roots of this event, we spoke to Doug Payne, the highest finishing U.S. rider in individual eventing. The Americans, Doug Payne, 39 years old, resides in Rougemont, North Carolina. He's riding a 17-year-old gelding, Vandiver. The Americans will begin the day. Doug, we hear some commotion behind you, not from a stable, however. Yeah, so we are hanging in the airport, about to hop on a plane bound to Newark. And the horses actually are um, back at the barn here, still in Tokyo. They fly out, I think, on Thursday or Friday, which is, what, three or four days from now. Um, And then they're going to go from here to Europe and then Europe to the States. It's about a two-day quarantine for those guys. And then they're going to hop on a truck and head home for real. So um, we will be lucky enough. I will be lucky enough to be home tomorrow, but they're probably... I don't know, just about a week behind us by the time he's actually home. Uh, But Quinn will get home and, you know, well, well well-deserved vacation. He'll he'll have uh, a bunch of time off and uh, probably start to ramp up for a a major competition next spring. On to the next, right? So for those of us who aren't familiar with eventing, tell me about the format of the event. So it's kind of like the... uh, triathlon of equestrian sports so you have the first phase three phases total uh you have a combined score that then determines the um the eventual winner and the first phase is uh dressage which is a um, choreographed kind of like a figure skating routine almost um different movements that um are subjectively scored second phase is the cross country which is probably one of the most exciting things uh, i think done in the equestrian world that's um timed event that is over obstacles that are out in the field and so you're up and down all sorts of different terrain jumping water ditches banks all sorts of stuff uh, and then the third phase is uh show jumping which most people have probably seen at some point but uh rails that would fall down in your uh, again time and, and uh, faults whether the rail stayed up or not um the origin originally is all in uh, cavalry so that's sort of the, the the basis of it and it's certainly evolved over time but um, yeah that's where we're at we're talking to you in the context of the steeplechase, right? So tell us more about the cross-country portion of eventing. Yeah, so um, at, at uh, Tokyo here, it was 7 minutes, 45 seconds was the optimum time. And that's traveling at uh, 570 meters a minute. So that's like 23 or 24 miles an hour. I'd have to look it up exactly. But in that ballpark, as your average speed. So you're at the peak, you're, you're quite a bit faster at that. Um in generally within the sport at the very top end it would range from there all the way up to maybe 11 and a half minutes um and with the shorter time frame it's actually sort of up the intensity so there's actually probably more jumps per 
uh, per meter along the, the track than normal, which makes your speed in between have to be that much faster and that much quicker. So the, the best of the horses would be adaptable, um, quick thinking uh, riders as well. Um, the, the, the big challenge when you compare it to maybe show jumping is that show jumping would be in a, an arena, flat surface, uh, very predictable distances between jumps, that sort of thing. And um, on the on the cross country, you just have all sorts of environmental conditions that make that even harder to predict. So the very best are, are really quick thinking and, and uh, cat-like instincts. They've got to, they've got to come into play to, to really make most of the course. You know, this idea of recreating these natural obstacles in a very deliberate, almost artificial way, it's interesting to me. What what are the surfaces the horse performs the cross country on? Yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, you're I mean, primarily it's grass, right? Um and it's and it is very much looked after on the, the top end of the sport. It's uh let's see, grass would probably be anywhere from four to six inches in length. Uh, so a little tall, kind of like the rough of a, a golf course, more or, not, more or less, probably a really good analogous surface. Um, and that's really what we'd be after. If somebody has a little bit of sponge to it, a little, little, um, little bit softer, it's just a bit easier on the horses. Um, but yeah, they would jump up and down hills. Uh, they would set jumps on the front of a hill or the back of a hill. Or you have an uphill landing, downhill landing, that sort of thing. Or, or then you also have jumps that land into water over a drop. And uh, Yeah, there's, there's just a, a whole bunch of varied things. And like I said, its origin is all in, in Calvary. So, um, you know, it was originally, originally mimicking what the horses might see in, in wartime. And uh, clearly that's evolved in become far more technical, but the bravery aspect is still a, a plays a very big role in our sport. We spoke to steeplechase athletes who said the exact same thing, that it gets pretty intimidating. Why is bravery important for eventing? Um, the horses do have to be incredibly brave because there's a lot of times it's, um, you know, you have a big solid jump and a, a, a landing that looks as if you're just jumping off into space so they've got to trust the the rider and, and we, we would start that from most of these horses we start up at, at age sort of three and a half four would be when they actually just start to get a very basic introduction but they're competing for real probably starting at age five so it's uh start small and um you kind of introduce uh, many versions of all that they might see later in life and uh, progressively build over time. And it must be a different feeling when you're riding a well-adapted horse. It's almost a relationship, right? Uh, it's, you become, especially with these horses here, you know, you've, you've known each other for an incredibly long period of time and you've you spent hours and hours and hours working uh, to get to this point. So you, in a, a really uh, well-suited, successful rider is going to be able to pretty quickly pick up horses' tendencies. And then with the relationship, as long as they are, you know each other backwards and forwards. And, and with very high certainty, you know how the horse might adapt or uh, perceive any type of fence or whatever it might be. So um, knowing that that's the case and you've got a whole ton of experience under your belt, then you can go out and, and really attack the course and um, you, you're working as a team together without a doubt. But the team, like you said earlier, does get split up during travel. Uh, tell us about bringing horses to Tokyo. What was that like? Yeah, so they uh, they hop on a plane. So you, you you very well might have, if you're on a transatlantic journey at some point, had horses in the back. Um, there's, a, there's often either straight 
cargo plane or um, sometimes they fly a like KLM has the uh, combo planes, so they would be passengers up front, horses and horses and cargo, but really horses in the back. Um, and the horses, uh, they actually came. We had to quarantine, do a pre-export quarantine in Aachen, Germany. So they flew from. We're based in North Carolina. We had to drive up to New Jersey. Uh, they flew out of Newark. They are uh, JFK. They go JFK to um, into Amsterdam. Then they shipped to Germany. We we're there for a week and a half, or two weeks almost. And then they flew from Germany to Tokyo. But the catch there, they had to stop in Dubai for fueling. So it was an epic journey for sure for them to get there. On the way back, which is awesome, there was a, a really well-known German rider that had apparently some Russian connections, and they've got a permit to uh, overfly Russian airspace. So it's actually saving the horses about seven hours on their way back to, to Europe, which is awesome. Wow. I have this whole new appreciation for how this event comes together. When we watch replays of cross country, what do you want us to see? You know, it's it's a it's a, clearly it's a unique sport, but it's uh it's so exciting. And frankly, the the more with anything that you watch, right? Uh, the more you know about it, the more you find out, the more intricate the detail is, and the more exciting it is to watch. Um, you know that I think it's really difficult to overstate the amount of time and dedication all these riders have to the sources. It's it's not at all like a um, in racing. You know, you the jockeys are paid jockeys and they get on pretty much any horse it is and they might have a relationship and they they certainly would end up riding them a bit but um the time spent and the relationship that's formed between these horses and riders is far and away uh probably the most in any equine discipline and i think that is the the true test is on the cross country uh where that where that relationship shows up and and when done well it's super smooth soft you know flowing um it's really elegant in the end to, to, to watch. So it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those that the, the more you, more you check into it, the more it's going to rope you in. Elegance, flow, smoothness, fun. These aren't what you'd immediately associate with purposefully flooding the landing of a jump in an otherwise perfectly good field or track. And yet, as we've learned, the idiosyncrasies of these events and their common history is what attracts its competitors and makes them so compelling to watch. We may no longer have this steeple spire in the distance to aim for, but we certainly are on the peak of Olympic excellence. Follow the podium now on Apple Podcasts and wherever you're listening to get automatic downloads. And tune into the networks of NBC to watch it all unfold. This podcast is presented by NordaTrack from iFit.